We each owe a death. There are no exceptions. Paul Edgecombe wrote those words after his experience of a prison warden on death row. Usually death row, he wrote, was called the last mile. We called it the green mile instead. The green mile refers to a stretch of green cement pavement that runs from death row all the way to the executioner's chair. The green mile is the pathway that leads to death. But as the aging Paul Edgecombe looked back over his life, what he thought of when he thought of the wardens and those who lived on death row, one thing came to his mind, he wrote, at 107 years of age, we each owe a death. There are no exceptions. Now, some of you have picked up on the illusion. Those are the words of Paul Edgecombe, a fictional character from a Stephen King serial novel called The Green Mile that later became a film starring Tom Hanks. And Stephen King is an author who writes horror and suspense novels, usually involving some kind of plot twist. The story of The Green Mile centers on a few men on death row and the wardens who watched them. By Stephen King's own admission, the story is actually intended as a kind of gritty religious allegory showing us what would happen if Jesus Christ showed up in our modern world and how we would treat him. Now, one of the matters Stephen King's confronts us with in the Green Mile is the great need all people have deep down inside. We've all done something so wrong, even the good among us, that we owe a death. There are no exceptions. In other words, in the story, both the criminals and the cops, the criminals who break justice and the cops who are supposed to keep justice, both parties need atonement. No one is immune. We're all condemned and all of us are walking down the green mile to our death, some faster than others. Now, what Stephen King wrote into fiction in The Green Mile, uh, Peter Berger, an Austrian-born professor uh, at Boston University, wrote in a scholarly work called A Rumor of Angels, Angels, Modern Societies Rediscovering the Supernatural. While, While Stephen King was saying, we each owe a death, there are no exceptions, Peter Berger reflected and put it this way, that deeds that cry out to heaven also cry out for a hell. Or we could put it this way, some deeds are so evil, they cry out to heaven that there must be a hell. Berger writes that when you watch a Nazi war criminal and Holocaust mastermind Adolf Eichmann hanged for his crimes, Berger says there's something inside of us that says hanging is not enough for that man. Deeds so monstrous as these, he writes, cry out to heaven that there has to be a hell. Thus, friends, I want you to think about this. Hell, far from being a reason not to believe in God, is one of the many reasons you should believe in God. We each owe a death. There are no exceptions. Well, friends, today in our text in the Christian Bible, we are confronted with these same themes of injustice and atonement. Some deeds are so great they can't be undone. They're so great they can't be corrected. They can only be atoned for. And that's the question the story asks. How do we atone for wrong? We live in this kind of culture milieu in the West, that ours is a world with such a a fine-tuned sense of injustice that we know you can overlook evil, even perceived evil, 
And if you do, somebody somewhere will let you know. Wrongs must be righted. They must be paid for. And the payment will be costly. That's our cultural moment. We're all in too deep. We all owe a debt. Our deeds are so great. They're going to cry out to heaven for a hell. And in our passage today, that's what we'll see unfold. Would you please locate 2 Samuel 21? It's in part one of the Christian Bible. 2 Samuel 21. For several weeks, we've been following the life of one of the great kings of the earth, King David. And as 2 Samuel 20 comes to a close, David settles Jerusalem for a second time. For the first time since 2 Samuel 8, Saul, uh, not Saul, David is settling Jerusalem in peace. God's king is back in God's city with God's reunited people now in God's presence. And now comes the epilogue. 2 Samuel 21 to 24. Far from being a haphazard arrangement, the author has placed chapters 21 to 24 at the end of Samuel out of chronological order and then artfully arranges these five chapters in such a way so that the outer chapters, chapters 21 and 24, frame the, in, the inner poetic sections of 23, 22 and 23. Or to use the language and tools we, we used in our summer Bible study, chapters 22 and 24 form an inclusio, a top and tail. Or let me change the metaphor again. Chapters 22 and 24 are two thick, hearty slices of bread that hold in the poetic meat of chapters 23 and 24. So as a result, the divine writer and these final chapters, so beautifully arranged, is inviting our exploration to taste and see for a final time how rich God is in mercy, how great He is in His grace. So King David's hymns in this middle section in 22 and 23 are going to provide us with a theological lens through which we can reread all of first and second Samuel. So we have in these chapters at the end of second Samuel, a grand view from a scenic overlook to look all the way back to the dark days of, of one Samuel one, reminding us of the faithful King God gave to us, but also from the scenic look. Now we'll be able to look all the way ahead into the future, previewing a future King to come. So, As 1 and 2 Samuel end, and we come to the end, God's chosen Messiah, King David, knows that God's steadfast love is going to outlast him until a son of David sits on the throne forever. 2 Samuel 22.51 Great salvation, David knows, he will bring to one of his sons forever. David's looking forward. Let's begin by reading... 2 Samuel 21, 1 to 14. Again, these are, these are out of order chronologically, but they're meant to generalize David's life as a king. And you know, one of the great needs God's people had for a long time. Go back to the days of the judges. All the wrong going on. There's no king in Israel. All the way through the time in, in, in Samuel's day, what is the thing that people needed? They needed a king who would provide atonement for injustice. And now as Samuel comes to a close, we're going to have a gruesome view of a king who provides the atonement that people like you and I need. The scene is graphic, 
but let the scene of this bloody atonement work on us. Be ready to see yourself. Because as we read, we're about to see the consequences of sin, the seriousness of it, the curse of covenant breaking, and the cost to remove a judicial curse. Now, I want you to look for the word atonement as we read. Or maybe your translation will have make amends. That's our popcorn word. When you find atonement or make amends, you know we're at the heart of the text. So let's watch now as God's king provides atonement for his people. Second Samuel 21. This is what Holy Scripture says. Now, there was a famine in the days of David for three years year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord. And the Lord said, There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house, because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. And although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. And David said to the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? And how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? The Gibeonites said to them, it's not a matter of silver and gold between us and Saul and his house. You can't pay for it. Neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, What do you say that I should do for you? They said to the king, the man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we would have no place in all the territory of Israel. Let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. The king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, whom she bore to Saul, Armoni and Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Merab, the daughters of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzalei, the Maholothite. And he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites. And they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord, and the seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of harvest, at the beginning of barley harvest. Then Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of the harvest until rain fell upon them from the heavens. And she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day, or the beasts of the field by night. When it was told to David what Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, the concubine of Saul, had done, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Jabesh-Gilead who had stolen them from the public square of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hanged them on the day the Philistines killed Gilboa. And David brought up the bones from there, the bones of Saul, the bones of his son Jonathan, And they gathered the bones of those who were hanged. And they buried the bones of Saul and the son of Jonathan in the land of Benjamin and Zelah in the tomb of Kish, his father. And they did all that the king commanded. And after that, God responded to the plea for their land. This is the word 
of the Lord. Now, before we look at this passage closely, I want us to notice how this passage itself has a top and tail, how it opens and ends. It opens with a revelation in verse one that the Lord had brought a famine on the land. Why? Well, look again at the end of verse one. Because there was blood guilt on Saul and his house. You remember the hands of Lady Macbeth? Her hands were stained with blood long after the murder most foul. So Saul and his household, this former king, his hands, his line is stained with blood. So there's a three year long famine in the land due to this unacknowledged guilt. But now look how the section ends. What's the last line of the story in verse 14? Look at the end of 14. God responded to the plea for the land. Or after that, God ended the famine in the land. So this passage opens with the Lord imposing a famine on the land for injustice. And it ends with the Lord removing a famine. Why? Because of what unfolds in between. What we're about to look at is the reason why the Lord removed the curse of the famine. Now listen, there are questions this text presses in on us that we might not be able to answer fully. But based on how the passage opens and it closes, we know that the Lord accepts the atoning actions of his king. Because that's how the story ends. But it's asking us this as we read it. What does God justly require to lift a curse in a just way? So with all that in mind, let's take a look at this. And remember, at the heart of it all is this story of atonement. How can a curse be justly removed? First, Notice the cause of the atonement. We're going to see the cause, the need, the cost, and the satisfaction of the atonement. But let's think first of the cause. I'll repeat those later as we go. But the cause of the atonement, verse 1. Now, we're not told exactly when this takes place, but at some point in David's reign, there's a famine that lasts day after year after year for three years. Sometimes I saw a map late last night at 11 o'clock on the news that some parts of the states are in a drought. But we rarely feel the effects of a drought in the United States. You may have to ration your water in the lawn or so, but, but, but we can run to the grocery store or, or I run to the QT convenience store, the mecca of Scooby snacks and drinks. We rarely experience a drought of any kind. The effects of inflation? Yes. The effects of famine? Hardly. But in such an agrarian society of Israel, then, as many parts of the world are today, you depend so much on things you can't control, like rain. So now, year after year, people have had a hard time producing any food at all, and anything they had in their storehouses has now come to an end. Now, you just think of this, as school starts up, what would it be like for you not to eat for the next three years of school? It would bring a whole new meaning to the teenage phrase of, I'm starving, right? Three years? Well, the situation is desperate, and David knows it. He's the shepherd king. He's responsible for caring for God's people well. So now the king does what all leaders should do, but few leaders do. What is it? Well, look at the middle of verse 1. David sought the face of the Lord. I once heard an 
An atheist author and, and teacher Christopher Hitchens described prayer as a form of solipsism, a kind of arrogance that you think that you can get the world to revolve around you. Now, Hitchens is one of my favorite people to listen to and read. He's clear thinking, he's upright with his positions, and he, he, he assumes uh, the, the, the consequences of what he believes. But prayer at a basic level is not a plea from someone who thinks the world revolves around himself, but rather a deep recognition by someone who knows, I need help outside of the world that's in myself. Arrogant people don't pray. Humble people pray. So here's David as the king, a most powerful man in the world, doing what all powerful leaders should do, but rarely do. He's seeking the Lord. He's recognizing his dependence on someone outside of himself. Beloved, there are things we've seen lately in King David's life that we should not imitate. But here's an aspect of David's life that we should follow him in. David sought the Lord. And the Lord who loves to answer our prayer He loves to answer it more than we love to to pray. And the Lord doesn't hear David's prayer because David is a king and he has a private line. The Lord hears his prayer because the Lord loves to hear prayer. He's gracious and merciful. He will hear our prayers, too. Now, listen, I know, I know, beloved, that this passage is not in the Bible mainly to teach us about prayer. But as we move along in the story, I just wanted to pause and say it's always good to be reminded of the importance and privileges of prayer. While the ancient ancient (laughs) while the American Revolution was raging in the States, a converted slave trader in Olney, England, put together a hymnal with his backyard neighbor named William Cooper, who often suffered deep, dark bouts of depression. And one of those hymns, John Newton wrote these lines about prayer. You're coming to a king. Large petitions to him bring for his grace and power are such that none can ever ask too much. David sought the Lord. Well, in answer to prayer, David found out something that he needed to know, but he found out something that he didn't want to know. And praise God that he tells us things that we need to know, even if we don't want to know them. That's how much God loves us. He tells us the truth. In answer to David's prayer, he reveals the cause of the atonement. What was the cause? The end of verse 1. Did you see it? The cause of the atonement is Saul's sin. Because there's blood guilt on Saul and his house. Now think then of the horror of sin. Think, think that our sins have far-reaching consequences, even to the soil beneath our feet, to the cells in our body. Indeed, doesn't Paul later write in Romans 8 that the whole creation is under a curse, groaning because of Adam's sin? Sin, behold the magnitude of sin. Ever since his sin against Bathsheba and Uriah. We watched the consequences of sin unfold in David's family. And now we're beholding the consequences of sin unfold through Saul to the nation. David repented. Thus, he limited the consequences of sin to his family. Saul never repented and he unleashed a tsunami of, of, of consequences of unrepentant sin on an entire nation. Three years, year after year. There was a famine. Oh, the selfish villainy of our sin. In every sin, no matter how small, we detonate a nuclear bomb whose destructive radioactive fallout we can never control. We 
we should never underestimate the power of sin to destroy everything around you, not only what's in you. You can delete your Internet history, but you can't delete its effects on people around you. You can erase the paper trail, but you can't erase the consequences of sin. Our sin, like a giant boulder thrown into a lake, sends ever-widening circles out that touches lives of people far beyond our own. Sin has consequences you can't control. Repent before it's too late. There's a famine in the land because of Saul's sin. Could that be happening in your life? Suffering is not always tied to sin. That's the book of Job. But sometimes suffering is tied to sin. That's 2 Samuel 21. The passage then shows us that it's always appropriate to use every trial in our life as an occasion to examine our lives before God. Let us use our trials as David has used them here to seek the Lord. Trials of any kind from a flat tire to a failed test. Trials of any kind from a lost job to the loss of health. From a fractured leg to a famine. Trials of every size and shape are always an occasion to seek the Lord to ensure we're right with him. And how gracious of the Lord to improve our eternal joy by sending us present pain. Well, if you keep this chapter in the context of the Bible story, you will see this famine as actually an evidence of God's faithfulness. As God's people are about to enter the promised land, God's great prophet Moses calls them all together and he calls them to a faith-filled obedience to their redeeming God. And as Deuteronomy ends, Moses sets out a series of formal blessings and formal curses. And the people gather on one mountain and one mountain. You know the gym, we've got spirit, how about you? We've got spirit, how about you? That's not what they say. On one mountain, they pronounce the blessings. On this mountain, the people echo back with the curses. It's a solemn covenant reminder that if you fail to keep the covenant obligations placed on you by my redeeming love, I will bring down on you a wide-ranging series of curses. And one of those curses for failing to live in light of my love, God says, would be famine. The sky above your head will be bronze, the ground beneath you iron, Deuteronomy 28, 23. And in particular, God promised that if the land ever became polluted with blood, with murderous acts, like acts legal in our land today, murderous acts polluted the land, that the land itself would be cursed with a famine. So while not all suffering and ecological harm comes from sin, this passage shows us and Genesis shows us that sometimes they do. So setting this chapter in the context, the literary context of Deuteronomy helps us see the famine is the result of God being faithful. How so? He promised He would curse the land with a famine if they polluted it with blood. Numbers 35, 33. The cause of the famine was Saul's sin and it's evidence that God's simply being faithful to his promises. Now think of this, friends. The fact that God keeps his promises is a double-edged sword. God not only keeps his promises to bless, but he also keeps his promises to curse. 
And the cross is a supreme demonstration of the double-edged nature of God's faithfulness to keep His promises. Because the bloody cross of the Lord Jesus Christ is the cruel place of propitiating death, a promise of God's blessing for all who turn to Christ. But the cross is also the promise of God's curse on all those who turn from Christ. For if we reject Christ, there remains no more a sacrifice for sin. So you who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, at the cross you may view its nature rightly, there its guilt, your guilt, I estimate. Well, what have we seen so far? The cause of the atonement and God's faithfulness to curse. The curse is because of Saul's sin, kept because of God's faithfulness. Well, now the curse, the cause of the atonement to the need of the atonement. Verses 2 to 5, the need of the atonement. At the end of verse 1 and running to 5, this tribe is the Gibeonites now sheds light on the specific nature of Saul's sin. We know that Saul had put the Gibeonites to death. There's blood on his hands. But as as Ron explained to us from that passage in, in Judges 9, Saul's actions were more than a few deaths. He had he had broken a covenant and then pursued a kind of Gibeonite genocide. How do we know? Well, listen to their words again in verse five. Look at their words. This man, Saul, consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we would have no place in Israel. He attempted a kind of ethnic cleansing to wipe out an entire ethnic group. And what the Gibeonites zero in on as what what make King Saul's actions so odious is the promise that went all the way back to Joshua 9. Joshua and the leaders had made a promise. They'd sworn an oath before the Lord. They swore an oath several times. And even after it was they was revealed to them, they had been tricked. Even after they had a chance, in a sense, to back out of it, even after they renewed their formal covenant. Joshua, as the head of the nation, made a formal covenant in behalf of the nation. And this formal covenant between a greater nation at the time, Israel, and a lesser nation, Gibeonites, was done in the presence of God and ratified even after they had a chance to go back. So now Israel was bound as a nation by solemn oath before God to care for the Gibeonites. That was the oath. And that is where the Gibeonites argue Saul's actions were so treacherous. Because now Saul, as the federal head of Israel, as the king, Saul himself in particular is bound by a sacred and national oath to protect the Gibeonites. But instead of keeping this sacred oath before God to let them live, Saul gives an order to wipe them out. And I just want to underline, it's not simply that Saul broke his personal word. Lying at any level is bad. Disloyalty is evil. But Saul, as the head of Israel, as the king, broke a national promise that was made before God. And now Israel suffered as a result of what their king had done. And set this in the context of Saul's life. This act, in a sense, at the end of the story of 1 and 2 Samuel, this act, in a sense, is the final characterization of the essence of Saul's life. He was highly gifted, skilled, a charismatic leader, 
Bold, courageous, good looking. That's how he comes on the scene. But he was a covenant breaker at every turn. He broke God's commands repeatedly. And when called to the carpet, he always had an excuse. And not even in 1 Samuel 28, when, when, when Samuel speaks to Saul from the grave, not even then does Saul turn back and repent. It's very similar to Jesus Christ telling those in his day, you know, you wouldn't believe though someone would rise from the dead. They have God's word, Moses and the prophets. That's the same thing Samuel said to Saul. You've already been told what God's word is. Now think then of the incongruity of Saul's actions. He had refused to kill a king named Agag, whom God had commanded him to destroy. But now he sought to kill an entire nation whom God commanded him not to destroy, bound by this oath. Behold Saul. The self-willed covenant breaker, deeply religious, deeply self-willed, deeply stubborn, who led a nation he was called to protect into sin and tried to enact genocide on a people he was bound to guard. No wonder God said at the end of verse 1, there's blood guilt on Saul and his house. Such great sins led to such a great famine You see, some deeds are so great they cry out to heaven for a hell. The only response to this revelation about Saul's actions is David's. David tells you what you should think as a reader of the story. What does David say in verse 3? What shall I do for you? How can I make atonement? Now we're at the heart of the story. Here we're brought face to face with a great need. How can David atone for the egregious genocidal sins of his predecessor that broke a solemn covenant before God? That's what David asks. What can possibly be done to atone for that kind of evil? Now, friends, I want to pause for a moment. And looking at the wrongs in Saul's life, we should reflect on the wrong in our own life that calls out for atonement, too. I don't mean don't I don't mean individual deeds. I never did what Saul did. Ah, ah, ah. I'm referring to the fundamental disposition that Saul had that we have, meaning we live without reference or in opposition to the God who made us. That's Saul. What about the need for our atonement, having lived our life without reference to God or in outright opposition to God? How do you atone for that? That's Saul's dilemma and our dilemma. Just like Stephen King is pushing us in the green mile and the actions of others and seeing in that story, the true story in 2 Samuel 21 shows us that through Saul to see ourselves, he's not the only one with a fundamental disposition of sin that needs atonement. Well, we might think that David could empty the treasures of Israel He could offer the Gibeonites a royal uh, compensation to atone what Saul has done. But the Gibeonites show us that some wrongs are so serious, you could never make up with them by purely human effort. An answer to David, they say in verse 4, that no amount of money can atone for the genocidal murders that Paul committed. 
They say it's not a matter of silver and gold between us and Saul or his house. They're telling you a principle of atonement that certain wrongs can never be paid for by human effort. Silver and gold can't make up. Silver and gold would only cheapen the offense. All for sin cannot atone. In the Gibeonites' words, I want us to think for, for a few moments of they're telling you there are ways that you try to atone for sin that are illegitimate. Money's just one of them. Let's think, let's think of other ways that we try to atone for sin that's, that's illegitimate. You can't, silver and gold don't do it. What are other ways that we, we do it? Earlier this year, I, I read a book called Forgive, and the author mentioned several ways that rather than, rather than confess our sin, we try to atone for our sin. Here's, here's one thing we do to try to atone. We actually whitewash our sin. You know what that is. You know, instead of dealing with what's causing the water stain on the ceiling, we say it's probably not that bad. I'll just paint over it. Instead of dealing with what's causing the water stain on the ceiling, we ignore it. We whitewash it. We atone for the sin in our lives by pretending there's nothing to see here. It's really not that bad. We could also try to atone for our sin by shifting the blame. You ever played on a team? Pick up team at the park at your house? Uh, the, the person who drops the pass or misses the basket, it's never his fault. It's the wind. Uh, the keys in my pocket. I was playing basketball with a guy one time, and I was playing with a guy far I was who kept breaking his ankles, and the guy said, my keys, they're holding me down, man. They're holding me down. It's never your fault. There's always blame shifting. That's the way we try to atone for our sin. It's not my fault. And why do we blame shift? We blame shift to justify our wrong. Remember, we've said again and again, it's here in the bookstall, precious remedies of Satan's against Satan's devices. Thomas Brooks says we justify our wrong by painting our vices with virtue's colors. I'm not proud. I'm just assertive. I'm not controlling. I just like a schedule. I don't drink too much. I just like others to have fun. I'm not nagging. I just need you to respect me. We shift the blame to justify our wrong or we shift the blame to shift responsibility. Saul could have said, I didn't break the oath. I just did what Joshua should have done in the first place. I was correcting his wrong. He shifted responsibility. So what of us? I wouldn't have had an affair if you would have been a better spouse. If you knew of my experiences growing up, you would understand why I act like that. I may have been wrong, but you're just too sensitive. You see how this works? The Gibeonites say there are ways to atone for sin that are not right. You can't pay money for it. You can't whitewash it. You, 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 you can't shift blame for it. Nor thirdly, can you try self-pity? I've suffered so much. Work has been so stressful. I actually think I deserve this. That's self-pity. If only you knew how hard my life has been on me. That's self-pity. Or fourthly, this is probably where many of us lie. We try penance or the old self-flagellation. I will show people how sorry I am by working even harder and I'll never bring it up again. I'm not talking. I'll just work my way. 
or I'll become so full of sorrow and tears until someone puts their hand on my shoulder and says, it's not that bad. You're really not that guilty. That's self-pity trying to atone for the actual guilt of wrong. If I beat myself up enough before God and others, this will atone for my sin and nobody will ask me for anything else. We can even try a positive form of penance. I just learned this phrase. I checked it with my kids so I know it's legit. You know, a positive form of of penance and self-flagellation, it's love bombing. Nick introduced me to this phrase. You know what love bombing is? It's actually defined in the Cleveland Clinic as a psychological tool. Or that great trusted source of Wikipedia says, love bombing is an attempt to influence a person by a demonstration of excessive attention and affection. So love bombing means instead of facing the problems in your marriage, you bring home extra flowers and chocolates. You clean the house extra nice. You might even hire a maid. You're not trying, you're not trying to deal with it. You're trying to atone for your wrongs by love bombing. And with God and our sin, we love bomb him by being more faithful at church, by giving more money, by singing more louder, uh, singing louder, by, by canceling the internet, by praying the rosary, by witnessing to our neighbor. We're not facing our sin so much as love bombing God, manipulating him to ignore our sin. But all of these ways to atone for sin lead to arrogant lives, a hard heart or a despairing life. They all minimize the magnitude of the wrong that we have done. The Gibeonites say no amount of money can pay for this. No amount of whitewashing or self-pity or blame shifting or, or love bombing or penance can help. True atonement begins where all attempts at self-atonement end. The cause of the atonement, Saul's sin, the need for the atonement, something has to be done to make it right. And now the cost of the atonement. Verses five to nine. When David asked, what shall I do to make atonement? I want you to look again at what they said in the text. Let seven of Saul's sons be given to us that we may hang them before the Lord. Meaning as an act of justice. Now, listen, this is not a vengeful request on their parts. The Gibeonites request actually accords not only with other customs in the day, but more importantly, their request accords with the very word of God. Because I mentioned this to you earlier, Numbers 35, 33, you shall not pollute the land in which you live for blood pollutes the land and no atonement can be made for the land for blood that shed in it except by the blood of the one who shed it. You shall accept no ransom for the life of a murderer who's guilty of death, but he shall be put to death. They're simply referencing the law that's on the books written by God's own hand in Numbers 35. The only thing that can atone for this kind of wrongdoing will be death itself. The awfulness of the crime is matched by the severity of the atonement. And at some level, I think you could see that what the Gibeonites ask for involves a measure of restraint and mercy. They could have asked justly for a whole host of Israelites to be put to death who participated in Saul's genocide. But they ask for only seven. And they ask for the seven who are most closely related to Saul. And why seven? 
Most likely because seven is a symbolic number for completeness. Thus, it's not a request for more bloodlust, but it's a request of like for like, of life for life. It's a righteous request for judgment, for atonement. It's also possible they ask for for Saul's sons. It's possible. I don't know. Because Saul's seven sons could have been directly involved with him, like Jonathan was earlier when he fell, in his genocidal warfare alongside their father. Because verse 1, the Lord says, there's blood, there's blood guilt on Saul and his house. Regardless, there's a deeper principle of corporate solidarity and representation that just as Saul was acting as a federal head and representative king, not just personally, but he was acting nationally, so the atonement now, in a sense, must be national. And since Saul's no longer alive, and he can't stand in for the nation as a representative, then seven of the king's son, seven symbolizing completeness, they will stand in as sons of Saul for the sins that Saul had done. It's, it's imputation. It's Corporate representation, national sins atoned nationally by those most responsible for it, the king. And so David hands over the seven sons, two sons from Rizpah and five from Merab. And it's hard to miss the agony of the scene. Surely the mothers wept and wailed as their grown sons were bound and handed over. And then these seven sons were impaled to hang in the hot Middle Eastern sun. And so an atonement was made for the bloody genocide of Saul's covenant-breaking sin as the leader of the nation. It's bloody, it's horrible, and that's the point. It's supposed to be. A few chapters earlier, we saw Absalom's body hanging and twisting from a tree, caught with no place to go but death. And now... David the king hands over seven sons to atone for the corporate sins of Saul. And there they are, impaled on a pole, bleeding out in the sun. So as they hang there, their bodies now are a deterrent, a graphic warning of the consequences of sin, of the cost of an atonement. And don't look away too soon. Because this is where sin leads. All sin leads to a place like this. You need an atonement too. The reason I say don't look away too soon is because the narrator now slows the action way down in verse 10 and we're meant to slow down with it. It all comes to a halt as Rizpah, this concubine of Saul, a mother of two of the sons, she actually goes to the place of execution and we follow her there. And she spreads out a cloth of sackcloth and out of loyalty, she guards the body of her sins from further desecration. She spreads out a cloth and now she will keep vigil to keep the birds by day and the beasts by night from picking away at the flesh of her sons hanging in midair. It's all meant to slow us down as readers, to make sure we don't look away at what has happened. We wait with the mother. We think of her dead sons. And as we wait, we remember the end of verse 10 They were put to death and the first days of harvest at the beginning of barley harvest. Only remember, there was no barley harvest this year. 
there had been no barley harvest for the last three years because Saul had broken the covenant and his sins had led to such a famine, now to such a costly sevenfold atonement. This was barley harvest, but there was no barley now. Why? We'll just look at those seven sons. And as we wait with the mother still, something happens that hasn't happened for three years. We're told in verse 10, don't miss it, that Rizba waits until rain falls upon them from the heavens. There's been a famine for three years. But now that Saul's sons have been put to death, the rainfall can only mean one thing. The rain is real. Don't, the rain is real. The rain really happened. But the rain is also symbolizing that God was washing away the blood guilt from the land. The rain fell down upon them from the heavens. That's the text. Actually, the text is more graphic. than The Hebrew text doesn't say the rain fell down from them. Here's the Hebrew text. The water was poured on them from the heaven. The water was a divine deluge of water, literally, and symbolizing the ground being soaked and the washing away of the blood guilt from the land. Why? Atonement had just been made. God, verse 14, healed their land. Life had been given for life. It took death to give life. Precious life was the cost for such serious sin. The cost of the atonement was bloody death. And so we move from the cause, the need, the cost, and we've just witnessed the satisfaction of the atonement. God's king had just made a costly atonement for his people. And in the midst of the scene, intentionally reminding us of King Saul's covenant-breaking Don't miss the little vignette that shows up a scene of King David's covenant keeping. There's one son David spared. It's Mephibosheth. Why? Because verse 7, David had made an oath before the Lord to Mephibosheth's father that no harm would come to him. So now you have, as Samuel ends, a tale of two kings. King Saul's a covenant-breaking king who breaks an oath before God and leads to the need for costly atonement. David, as a covenant-keeping king who provides a costly atonement that ended sin. This is a covenant-keeping, atonement-providing king that we need. And David, like the God that he served, though he was just, he took no pleasure in the death of the wicked. We know that because David is moved by the devotion of Rizpah. He goes back then and he gathers the bones of King Saul along with the bones of Jonathan and he, he lays to rest the bones of all of Saul's sons in verse 14. David is the covenant-keeping king. He's the atonement-making king who takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked but respectfully lays them to rest. This is God's king who keeps a covenant and makes an atonement. And does it in a just, respectful way. Well, what do we make of all this? Well, for the readers then and there, for the readers who would read this coming out of the exile, they would learn as we do now of the seriousness of sin 
and its consequences. Beloved, we've been through a stretch in the Bible where God has graciously shown us the consequences of sin. The point is, don't sin. A famine, a civil war. They would also see that sin is so serious and the consequences so great that the only hope is there needs to be an atonement for sin. But there are certain attempts at atonement that will never do. Never do. They would have learned that too. They saw a king who led them into sin. They saw a need for a king who would lead them out of sin and provide an atonement for them and keep God's word. That's what they would see. That's what we see. But as generations would later read that story, those coming out of the exile, they would know that as good and covenant-keeping king as David was, he was not the final covenant-keeping, atonement-making king. And they still look for another king long after David was dead, who was not David, but will be David's son. Because don't forget, as we'll see next week, Lord willing, 2 Samuel twenty-two fifty-one, God says, great salvation he will show to his king, to David's son forever. That's the king they were looking for. Remember, beloved, as we put all this together, you always interpret a passage of the Bible within its context. We've seen a literary context of 2 Samuel 21, but the final context of any passage in the Bible is the entire Bible. So when you put 2 Samuel 21 in the context of the entire Bible, what you see is this, our need for atonement and the great cost of atonement that we need. That's what you see. How do I say that? Because at the cross, God, the king of the earth, did not offer up the sons of others to make an atonement for sin, but he offered up his own son to make an atonement for sin. What a difference that atonement is. The cross, you see, is the great self-substitution of God. The maker, the writer, writes himself into the story, and Jesus Christ, the Son of God, takes the punishment we deserve on our behalf. It's not only his robes for mine, it was his Back for mine. By his wounds, we are healed. We're not redeemed with silver and gold, just as the Gibeonites said would never happen. We're redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. And our sin is as every bad bit as bad as Saul's. For we too live without regard to God or we ignore him or we worship God and something else. And then we think of ways that we can atone for our wrongs. But we need an atonement greater than Saul. Our sins call for the death, not of seven sons. Our sins call for the death of God's son. And Jesus Christ is fully man so that he can stand in for us. There's human blood, can we say, in his veins so he can stand in for humanity. But he's fully God so that his death can be an infinite atoning price for our sin. And on the third day, King Jesus rose from the dead, proving that his atonement payment had been accepted once and for all. The resurrection is the receipt for our forgiveness of sins for all who believe in him. And at the cross, then, friends, it's not the body of seven corpses baking in the Middle Eastern sun making an atonement, but it's the brutalized body of the God-man hanging in the darkness making atonement for sin. The the men hanging as an atoning curse at Gibeah, the mountain of the Lord, give way to the Son of Man, hanging as an atoning curse at Golgotha, the place of the skull. 
And at Golgotha, there's a mother there besides Rizpah maintaining a vigil of love and devotion over her son. It's Mary, a sword's piercing her soul. She's watching her son suffer so that we could be forgiven. And at the cross, God is just. And he's the justifier of all who believe in him. The curse of sin is justly removed. You see, at the cross, God takes his own medicine in a sense. The sacrifice of the seven finds fulfillment in the sacrifice of Jesus, the one for many. And as we look a final time, don't look at the seven sons, but look at God's son. And we see our sin. The horror of it all is the point. We owe it death. There's no exception. His death displays my sin for all the world to view. What sin demands? Death. What our sin needs? Atonement. The cost of our sins. The death of the Son of God. But keep looking until you see the satisfaction for sins. For while his death, my sin displays for all the world to view. Such is the mystery of grace. It seals my pardon too. You know, the greatest love is self-sacrificing, substitutionary love. And somebody said, I think this is true, that all life-changing love is substitutionary, sacrificial love. All life-changing love is substitutional, sacrificial love. I forget which book it's in. I think it's Fontaine. But, but, But in Les Mis, I think she says... The supreme happiness of life is not that one is loved for one's own sake, but the supreme happiness of life is knowing that you're loved in spite of yourself. Whitney Houston was an excellent singer. I love her voice. But she got it wrong when she sang, the greatest love of all is learning to love yourself. The greatest love of all is being loved in spite of who you are. That knowing Jesus, the great king, took my place and he knew me and he still died for me. And now he lives to make intercession for me. He took, I don't know what all prisons do, he took my orange jumpsuit prison clothes and he had my prison number tattooed on his wrist to be treated accordingly and then he walked the long green mile in my place. But before he did, before he took my clothes and took my number, Jesus pinned his honor medals of righteousness to my chest so I could be treated accordingly. And I not only walked out free, but I walked out justified as righteous as Christ. The covenant-keeping, atonement-making David points to Jesus. And Jesus did not spare one Mephibosheth at the cross. He spared a world of them. Wounded for me. He was wounded for me. Gone my transgressions. Now I am free. All because Jesus was wounded for me. Do you know how much Jesus loves you? Wounded for me.